Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. Good to see you this morning. Good to see everyone who is watching online. We love you. We miss you. We hope that you are doing well. Uh, when I became a youth pastor in the late 90s and then continued on in youth ministry in the early 2000s, every youth pastor at that time was required to have one thing. And that was a goatee. It was like a prerequisite for the job. But I had a problem. I became a youth pastor when I was going to ORU, and ORU didn't allow me to have facial hair. And also, puberty never actually reached my face. And so I couldn't actually grow a goatee no matter how hard I tried. So I had to go with the alternative, which was to pierce my ears. Right? That was, that was like, if you couldn't grow facial hair, you could get some rings here. And then I had a cartilage pierced. Uh, I had that all the way until like a week after our wedding. And then Sarah decided she didn't like them anymore. Like surprisingly, you know, a week after. I was like, yeah, I don't think those things really worked now that you're a married guy. So they haven't been in since. It's got that junior high camps when girls recognize like, oh, he's got piercings and we need to see if we can put these big hoops in <laughs> at that point. And the other thing that was sort of a standard, like a prerequisite for being a youth pastor at that time was you also had to be a U2 fan. It was like just mandatory. Like to be cool was to also like you too. Uh, for those of you who are in Gen Z, I know I just firmly placed myself as like a Gen X cliche at that point in time. They were a band uh, that started in the 70s and had some like really big songs uh, ac across the time. But I actually became a U2 fan well before I became a youth pastor, watching MTV in the 80s uh, and seeing Bono's long hair. Uh, just, it was not the long hair. It was really those opening few songs to the Joshua Tree album. Uh, but my daughter, Cora, gave Gave me Bono's memoir uh, for my birthday. So I've been like slowly reading through that and then listening to the songs as they're going along. And so I've been thinking a lot about them. Uh, in fact, uh, you two once again made my Spotify wrapped for the year uh, as I think they were number three in my top five most listened to uh, artists. Perry Grip was number five. Uh, which means I share my account with my children. <laughs> and in fact, the number one most listened to song was We Don't Talk About Bruno. <laughs> Anybody else? Like just, that was there and you go, oh yeah, I don't listen to this as much as my children do. Uh, but as I was preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but think about one of you two's songs from their All That You Can't Leave Behind album, which is entitled Peace on Earth. And the song begins with these lyrics. Heaven on earth, we need it now. For I'm sick of all of this hanging around. Sick of sorrow, sick of the pain, and sick of hearing again and again that there is going to be peace on earth. A couple of verses later, Bono says this. He says that, we hear it every Christmas time. But hope and history, they won't rhyme. They don't seem to match up. And so at this point, what's it worth? This peace on earth. Bono's lyrics, I think, effectively capture that universal human yearning that we have for peace. As well as its elusiveness and our exasperation, our weariness in waiting for peace to be reality. 
we find ourselves as people aching for peace, aching for rest, aching for security, aching for an end of conflict and frustration and fighting and infighting and all that we see happening around us and nearly and nearly every sphere and nearly every level we see and experience the lack of peace whether we're thinking about it in geopolitical terms we look around and think when is there going to be peace in Ukraine when is there going to be peace in North Korea? When is there going to be peace in the Middle East? When is there going to be peace in North Africa for Christians that are being persecuted there? God, when is there going to be peace in those places? Or we think about it even at our own national level and we just came out of another election season and seeing all of the constant sort of part of political partisanship and the fighting that happens and wondering, God, how long, when is there going to be peace? And even at a national level or our community, we're still grieving the loss of lives two weeks ago from the Club Q shooting and wondering, God, when is there going to be peace around all of these things? It's the holidays, and so some of us are like, I cannot wait to go to mom's house or to grandma's house for whatever it is that you're waiting to eat. And other of us are like, do we have to? <laughs> like, is there like a shift I can sign up for at work? Can we open the school so that I don't have to go to the family gathering and wondering, is there ever going to be any sense of peace in our family of origin or in our relationship with our in-laws or whatever that might be? And then internally, we face it every day. The unrest that's inside of us, the places that we don't feel at rest or at peace in our own bodies, in our own souls, in our sense of shame or fear or regret or worry or doubt or anger or whatever we're carrying with us. <coughs> we just can't seem to find peace. Or if we do find it, we can't keep it. We can't seem to sustain it. And we find ourselves at times just wondering, then what do we do? Is it even worth still hoping for? Is it even worth still pursuing? What do we do with this longing for peace on earth? This is the second Sunday of Advent. For those of you who are new to church or new to the idea of Advent, Advent is not just like a cool or alternative name for Christmas. Uh, Advent is a word that for, describes a unique season in the church calendar. It begins four weeks before Christmas Sunday, four Sundays before. It's a season of preparation. The word Advent is a word that comes from a Latin term that means coming or arrival. But it's not just about a coming or arrival. It's about waiting for an arrival, waiting for something to come, waiting for something to happen. And so historically what the church does is that we enter into Israel's waiting. We rejoin the people of God in the Old Testament, waiting for Messiah, waiting for the King, waiting for Jesus to come the first time, which we'll celebrate on Christmas. But we also join with the church around the world and across time. And we recognize that we're waiting for Jesus to come again. And in both situations, we recognize that one of the things that we wait for is that we wait for peace. That this is fundamental to our waiting. Israel's prophets envisioned a future where there would be universal and eternal peace. 
But as they gazed out into the future, as the Spirit of God enabled them, as the Word of God came to them, and they were able to see sometimes in strange and weird visions, like what is going on right now? But what they saw was a future, universal, eternal, and everlasting peace. One of those prophets was a man named Zechariah who spoke during what we call the post-exilic time. So around 520, 515 BC, 500 or so years before Jesus, Zechariah was part of this first wave of people returning from exile in Babylon and coming to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah proclaimed that peace would come, but that it would come with a new king. That peace would come with a new king. It says this, Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, rejoice greatly daughter Zion. Sing loud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. And he is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. And he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The bow that's used in battle will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. And his rule will stretch from sea to sea and from the river to the very ends of the earth. Zechariah prophesies that a new king, one that we call the Messiah, will come. And when he comes, he will dismantle every armory. He will end every conflict and he will actually enact peace in the world. And this picture actually comes to the people of God It comes to the people of Judah while they're under occupation. Yes, they've come back to their land. Yes, they're starting to rebuild the temple. Yes, things are better than they were the day before, but they're still living under foreign rule. They're still oppressed with heavy taxes. They're still externally threatened on every side by all these other nations that were like, we liked it better before you were here. Could you go back to Babylon? And maybe we'll help you get back there. They're still terrorized and internally they're divided. They're not actually all of one heart and mind and accord. And it's in this setting that Zechariah says, peace will come. How many times do we actually think this is actually what our life looks like? But on every side, we're surrounded. But everywhere that our eye can see and everywhere we look and everywhere we go, we find some kind of oppression, some disruption, something that's not as it should be something that we wish were different. And it's into those situations that the words of the prophet come to us and say, peace will come. Peace will come. About 500 or 550 years later, the gospel writer named Matthew picks up on this prophecy. And he writes it down in relationship to Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That Jesus here on Palm Sunday is coming into Jerusalem and all these crowds are gathering and he's riding on a donkey and they're grabbing palm branches and they're screaming and they're shouting and they're waving their branches and they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us. They're recognizing Jesus is this king that was prophesied in Zechariah. Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. And they're standing there and they're waving and they're gathering and he's coming in on a donkey. And yet the week doesn't end the same way that it began. It doesn't end in a way that meets all of their expectations. 
Instead, it ends with Jesus' death, his crucifixion, his burial, and of course, eventually his resurrection. But peace was coming to them. The king was coming to them in a way that they didn't quite expect. For the gospel writer, he was claiming that peace has come. But what's interestingly, at the time that Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, very little had changed in the last 550 years. Judah was still under occupation. This time, instead of being led by the foreign pagan rulers of Persia, they're now being read by, led by Caesar, ruled by Caesar in Rome. They still find themselves oppressed with heavy taxes, only this time some of them decided we can get in on this and skim some off the top. Tax collectors finding a way to get wealthy in the midst of what's happening. They're still threatened on every side by Rome and by anybody else that doesn't like them there. And of course, they're still extremely divided internally. Maybe the only interesting thing is that the Roman Empire had the audacity to actually call this peace. This era of time under Roman occupation, Rome kept saying that the Pax Romana had arrived, that the peace of Rome was here, that this is actually what peace looked like. It arrived with violence, with overthrow, it arrived with foreign oppression, and it was sustained by the threat of violence. This is what peace looked like. It was established and it was maintained through the elimination of all threats and all enemies. And if we're honest, we're more familiar with this approach to peace than we care to admit. For many of us, when we think about peace, it's actually not far off from this idea because we commonly equate peace as Jay said earlier, with absence. We think about it primarily in the absence of conflict, the absence of war. But beyond that, we even think about it as the absence of noise. How many people at certain times you're like, I just need a little bit of peace and quiet. I need the noise of the children. I need the noise of my roommates. I need the noise of the neighbors. I need the noise of the factory. I need the noise of the classroom. I need the noise of social media. I need the noise of whatever. I need the noise of life to actually be muted for me to have peace. I need the absence of noise. If it's not that, it's the absence of stress, of busyness, of to-do lists, and all the things that we have going on, demanding our attention and responsibilities, asking for our energy or for us to make a decision or act on something, and we feel unpeace because of all that's coming at us. For some, it's the absence of triggers. I just need to get rid of all of these things. For me, it's the absence of clutter. This is why my kids every Friday are subjected to cleaning day. It's like, kids, guess what? We're going to clean the whole house and we're going to put everything back where it goes because when everything is in its right place, then I will have peace. I just know it. Only to find out five minutes after the room was cleaned, everything is out of the boxes again. <laughs> and I had it for like this fleeting moment. But that was in that room while this room was still undone. And when this room was getting done, this room was being undone. <laughs> I think this is my life. And by the time Sunday comes around and I think, when is it going to be Friday again? <laughs> Can we try one more time? But sometimes that we think about it as the absence of resistance. 
or maybe the absence of difference, or at times the absence of those who differ, the absence of those whose opinions are different than ours, whose lives are different than ours, whose point of view is different than ours. This is maybe what we think about when we think about the absence of enemies. And we believe that we can find peace by changing or reducing or eliminating those things or those people. That peace is actually what remains when everything else is gone. The peace, we think, is what fills the void in the midst of the absence that we've created. And there is some truth to that. Peace does include the absence of war. It does include the absence of abuse. It does include the absence of injustice. It does include the absence of pain. But taken to the extreme, if that's our whole view of it, then we can actually justify forcibly removing whatever and whoever prevents or opposes our vision of peace in the world. But this can be our approach to it. And of course, not all of us go into those places. Most often, for us, or maybe a little bit less often that than equating peace with absence, we equate peace with avoidance. <laughs> if we can't eliminate, if we can't remove, if we can't change, then what we can do is we can avoid. The coworker in the hallway. <laughs> Whatever it is that we can sort of move around. We've learned ways of sort of avoiding that which is difficult, that which is uncomfortable. We oftentimes live in ways that we say that it's easier to actually leave or avoid or ignore than it is to actually work on the situation, than to actually pay attention to it, than to actually move in that direction. And if we don't sit to go with the avoidance route, then what we do is we settle for a false peace, a peace that's based on pretense, on pretending like everything is okay. And what we do in those situations is rather than avoiding those things or those people that we don't like, we instead just put on a happy face and pretend like everything is okay. That we speak and act in ways that are actually incongruent with our convictions, with our beliefs, and with our emotions, we do everything we can to just keep the peace. And it's not actually peace that we're keeping in that sense. It's a false peace that we are keeping the illusion of. This is the kind of peace that I learned about growing up. That growing up in a household with a functional alcoholic who is prone to get really angry really quick, I learned just to not rock the boat. Everybody in the family just sort of adjusted around, okay, dad's home. Now, what do we do to keep the peace? Meanwhile, we're all dealing with our own sense of fear and anxiety and discomfort and pain and, and disappointment, but we're keeping the peace. Zachariah's prophetic vision, of course, does depict the end of violence. But interestingly, it's not by violence that violence ends. We're seeing that violence ends, that peace comes by the arrival of a particular king, one who is described in some very interesting ways. First of all, he's described as one who is righteous, who is and does what is right. 
the one who lives in right relationship with God and right relationship with others, who actually follows in the very way of God, who lives in with the grain of the universe, who lives in wise ways in the world, one who can be trusted to rule rightly, to enact right and just and good policies, the one who can be trusted to actually make the right decisions, and one who is described as victorious. But interestingly, the underlying Hebrew word is not for one who conquers, but it's one who is saved, one who is actually rescued, one who is redeemed, one who is vindicated by God, whose very life is actually rescued in some way. And because of that sense of being dependent upon God for his own rescue and his own reign, then this king is humble, fully dependent upon God for life, for redemption, for even the very call and position that he's meant to fill in the world. And this is depicted by riding in on a donkey, there's a lot, of course, debate around, like, what does this donkey symbolize? Some people would just say, well, it means that it is not a way of war, but it's a way of peace. But we find evidence in Judges and David, other times of kings riding in on donkeys. There's other scholars that will say, well, this is connected to Jacob's prophecy over Judah at the end of Genesis. And yet we do see in the passage, it's contrasted with war horses, and the Persian Empire, who is ruling at the time of Zechariah, all their kings rode on war horses. This is how they enacted their rule. And so for this king to ride in on a donkey does say that the kind of ruling associated with the war horses, that's going to end. That a new kind of reigning, a new kind of rule will be coming. And interestingly, he brings peace through this way of being, this way of leading, but he brings peace in the most interesting way. The king speaks peace. Amen. He makes peace with his words, not with swords. He makes peace by what he says, not by his fists. He makes peace by speaking, which for us as believers echoes the very creation narrative should call to mind for us that moment in Genesis chapter one, where everything is dark, everything's chaotic, everything's empty, everything's lifeless. And then the one true God speaks. And that which was dark becomes light. And that which is chaotic becomes ordered. That which was empty and lifeless becomes full and teeming with life, all because God said, let it be. And for us, this is, if you've grown up in church at all, this is such a familiar story for us that what gets lost is just how radical this story is, especially in relationship to the other civilizations in the ancient world. See, the other civilizations in the ancient world all had their own creation origin stories. They all had their way of envisioning how it is that this world came to be. And it all came through war. It all came from one God tearing apart the carcass of another God, creating the heavens and the earth by separating another God in half. Creation itself was the product of the gods at war. And yet in the scriptures, creation itself is the product of a God who speaks. 
In Genesis, God's good world isn't torn apart until it's ruptured by human rebellion. That's the first time that we see conflict in the story. All of this leads us to this place that we can say that biblical peace is more than the absence of war. It's something actually more than that. In the Old Testament, when the scripture writers are wanting to talk about the cessation of conflicts, when they're wanting to talk about the end of war or fighting, they most often use the word sheket. It's a word that means quiet or it means rest. In our house, sometimes it's sheket bavakasha. Be quiet, please, children. <laughs> Let there be silence. But when the Old Testament wants to talk about peace, they use the word that we mentioned earlier from Pastor Jay and in Micah's song. They use the word shalom. It's a different word. And the underlying meaning of that word is actually well-being. It means to be healthy, to be complete, to be whole, for everything to be as God intended it to be. So biblical peace is not just the absence of something. It's more than that. Biblical peace is not just the absence of war, but biblical peace is actually the presence of human flourishing. Biblical peace is the presence of everything being the way that God intended it to be. Biblical peace is about this idea of humans being restored into the image of God and all creation being restored into what God originally intended it to be. Biblical peace is not just the absence of all the things that we don't like or that are bad or that are evil or uncomfortable or irritating or annoying. Biblical peace is about the presence of flourishing. It's about everything being good and all things being well and all people being well and us experiencing a kind of deep, sense that all is well and all will be well because God has caused it to flourish. So the advent or the arrival of Jesus marks the advent or the arrival of well-being. The advent or the arrival of human flourishing into the world's. When the great multitude of angels appeared to the shepherds to sing and to announce the birth of Jesus, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. On earth, flourishing. On earth, well-being among those whom he favors. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, then we see how this peace works itself into the world and into people through Jesus, who on several occasions when he was interacting with people, the question that he asked them was, do you want to be well? It's the question that he asks all of us. Do you want to be well? Do you really want to know what it means to be well and to live well? In Luke 7 and 8, Jesus shows us an example of this. He encounters two women, both needing to be healed or to set free of something that's going on in their lives. And they come to him and Jesus heals them. And at the end of their interaction, Jesus looks both of them and tells them, go in peace. See, Jesus' healing of these women is, of course, a restoration to health, but not just to health. It's a restoration to community to being able to participate 
to being able to be gathered together with others. It's a restoration to worship where their afflictions actually kept them from entering into the temple. But now that they've been healed, they've actually been restored into community. They've been restored into worship. They've even been restored in the ability to be able to work, to serve, to come alongside others. They're being restored in every way. Peace looks like restoration. That's what peace actually looks like for us. Paul, when he's reflecting on the work of Jesus, he says a couple things about peace. He says, we have peace with God through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians, he says, Christ is our peace. He has made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. See, in some instances, we see that peace looks like restoration, and other times we see peace looks like reconciliation. It's about being reconciled to God and being reconciled to one another, actually being brought into a new relationship with the Creator and new relationship with other image bearers. This is what flourishing looks like. This is what shalom looks like. Biblical peace is actually holistic. It's bodily, but it's also relational. It's also spiritual. It involves our entire lives being brought back into alignment with God always intended for them to be. This is the peace that we are waiting for. This is the peace that we are longing for. And this is the peace that we actually have even now. As Christians, one of our core beliefs is that peace has actually arrived in Jesus. That peace is actually present. That the king has actually already come into the world. And so peace is here. But we still ache. But we're still sick of sorrow. And still sick of the pain. Because we recognize that we live between two advents. Between two arrivals. Because Jesus came, peace is already here. But peace is not yet everywhere because Jesus hasn't come back. Peace is already here. It's already broken in. Human flourishing is now possible in a way that it never was before because of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And yet, all around us, there's still distress. All around us, we still ache. All around us, we still see pain and discomfort and trouble. We see that peace is here and peace is not yet. Peace has arrived and there's still trouble in River City. Few of you got that Music Man reference. (laughs) Jesus puts it this way. He says in John 16, I've said these things to you so that you will have peace in me. But in the world, you have distress. But be encouraged because I have conquered or I have overcome the world. Peace in me, distress in the world. What does that mean for us? What it means is that with Jesus, peace is possible even in trouble. That it's possible to still thrive and flourish even in the midst of all that's happening around us. We can even say that Jesus promises peace to us in the waiting, in between the two advents. That because Jesus is with us 
And he's with us in trouble, and he's with us in distress, and he's with us in our ache and our pain, flourishing as possible. But that doesn't mean that it's easy, and it doesn't mean it always looks the way that we want it to. Because what we want it to, if we think about our visions of peace, oftentimes we just think about ourselves in some sort of solitary place, right? Our like Western enlightenment individualistic sort of view is me on a beach by myself looking at the sunset over a mountain, the ocean waves coming in slowly and the sound of no other human around, (laughs) right? Our visions of peace so many times are about the absence of all of those things. The biblical vision of peace is about what's possible with the presence of Jesus in our lives. And I'm not talking about a false peace. I'm not talking about a sort of superficial spirituality that denies hardship. When I first came to faith in, uh, as, a, as a teenager in my early 20s, I was kind of surrounded by the Word of Faith and Prosperity movement, which sort of said that the way that you have peace is to deny that there's anything hard in the world, right? You'd ask someone the question, like, really, how are you doing? Well, brother, I'm blessed beyond the curse. I'm above and not beneath. I'm ahead and not behind. And it goes on and on and on for there. I can't even remember all of the things anymore. I'm like, your mom just died. How are you really? Like, you don't have to deny the fact that there's trouble in the world and that you can still have a peace that passes understanding that doesn't make sense, that can guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus himself said, you will have peace in me, but in the world you will have trouble. It's there. You can't just sort of like, ah, it's not there. No, it's all around us. And the scriptures never say that we have to deny the reality of the world in order to experience peace in our lives. Peace doesn't come through some sort of like happy, clappy spirituality that everything is fine and dandy all of the time. But the way of the Jesus, the way of the gospel is that we can have genuine experiences of restoration and reconciliation and healing and joy even while all of this is going on around us. That we can actually experience the signs of the second advent while we wait in between the two of them. That we can actually have glimpses of what it is that we're waiting for. That because Jesus is here, peace is possible even in trouble. But as he always does, Jesus invites us to partner with him in that, to be his partners in peace, to work with him in the in-between, to work with him as we wait to work with the work of his Holy Spirit in bringing peace into our own lives and saying, God, where are you bringing flourishing to me? Where are you bringing well-being to me? How are you putting me back together? How are you making me whole? And how do I participate with that? It means working with his work, not only in our lives, but in the life of the church. As a signpost of what's to come, the church is meant to be a community of restoration and reconciliation. And so what does it mean to work with the spirit in the church? 
And of course, what does it mean to work in the world? In our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our relationships, how is it that we work with the peace that Jesus is bringing to the world? How do we become as Jesus, what Jesus called peacemakers? Those who know the blessedness of, co- of co-making peace with him and the world around us. Of course, if we're gonna work with him toward peace, then we also have to work in his ways toward it, which means pursuing righteousness, learning what it means to live in right relationship with God and one another. It means trusting God for our rescue, for our redemption, knowing that this isn't in our hands and it doesn't come by our own efforts or violence. It means walking in humility, living in ways that are dependent upon God and recognizing that we don't actually know everything or have everything, that we need God and we need others. And by being people who speak peace the same way that God does. This may be the one that's the most absent from our world today, where most of what we speak is anything but peace to one another whether in person or on social media or behind one another's backs. What does it mean to work with Jesus for peace? It means to work in his ways. As we come to the table, this morning I invite Pastor Evan and the worship team to come forward. I want us to take a moment and just to pause and to ask the Spirit to reveal to us how he wants to work well-being into us today and through us today. Take a moment and just turn to prayer right now and say, Jesus, how are you working your shalom, your flourishing in my life? Jesus is kind, and so he usually focuses on one area of our lives at a time, (laughs) because otherwise it would be overwhelming. (laughs) Jesus, how are you inviting me to partner with you? Or maybe to ask Jesus, how are you bringing peace into the world? How are you bringing peace into relationships? How are you bringing peace through me? How can I partner with you? As it relates to our own restoration, is Jesus inviting you into counseling? Is a way to partner with him? Is he inviting you into seeing a spiritual director to discern his work in your lives? Is he inviting you into a deeper spiritual friendship with someone? Inviting you into community in some ways that you've been avoiding? Most clearly, according to the scriptures, peace comes from Jesus. And so we find peace in his presence with him. Maybe the invitation is just to say, what does it look like to prioritize prayer? To prioritize worship or the scriptures or to say, Jesus, I'm just gonna sit with you and talk honestly about my life, about all the distress that I'm facing and I'm gonna ask you to speak peace to my troubled soul. Maybe... The invitation is working with him for the restoration of others. Where you look around and see hurt and pain, confusion, 
uncertainty, trauma, need, lack. And simply saying, Jesus, how can I partner with you in bringing flourishing into this situation? Not on my own and not on my own strength, but how are you at work? How can I partner with you? Maybe it's pursuing reconciliation. Not with somebody who has abused you and hasn't repented and changed. I'm not talking about that kind of reconciliation, but so many times we end up in places where there's been disappointment, unmet expectation, things that were said in anger, hurt, we're carrying. And maybe flourishing looks like forgiveness. Maybe flourishing looks like going to a person and saying, I don't, I don't like our relationship the way that it is. I would like something better. I would like something deeper. I would like something truer. Could we talk? Would you be open to pursuing that? But whatever it is, we know the place that we begin is another passage in John where Jesus said, my peace I give to you and my peace I leave with you. Peace is only found in the person of Jesus. So we come to the table once again, asking Jesus to speak peace to us as we receive his love for us once again.